Friedrich Nietzsche is one of the most original uh, of modern thinkers in the Western tradition. Uh, one of the uh, greatest and most devastating critiques of the Judeo-Christian tradition uh, is offered by Nietzsche in a number of works, including Beyond Good and Evil, and also the work that we're looking at today, The Genealogy of Morals. I'm joined by Sandy Lynch and Tim Smart to discuss this work. And I want to begin just by reading uh, a passage uh, from the first essay. The work is made up of, of three essays. And uh, in my edition, this is on um, page 39, where he's contrasting uh, the pagan world and the Judeo-Christian world. And he says, the Romans were strong and aristocratic. A nation stronger and more aristocratic has never existed here on earth, has never even been dreamt of. Every Roman relic, every Roman inscription enraptures us so long as we can glean what it is that writes the inscription. The Jews, conversely, were a priestly nation of resentment par excellence, possessing a unique genius for morality that would prove popular among the peasants. Just compare the nations with analogous gifts such as the Chinese or the Germans to the Jews to realise what is first rate and what is fifth rate. Which of them has been victorious in the end, Rome or Judea? There is not a shadow of a doubt just consider before whom in Rome itself you now genuflect, as though before the quintessence of all the supreme values, and not only in Rome, but over almost half the world everywhere where man has been tamed or is willing to be tamed to three Jews, as we know, and one Jewess, to Jesus of Nazareth, to Peter the fisherman, to Paul the carpet weaver, and to the mother of the aforesaid Jesus named Mary. This is very remarkable. Rome is undoubtedly defeated. Now, Nietzsche here is, is really uh, describing the incredible success of the Christian revolution, that the Christianity, um, which he says earlier, is the sort of culmination of, as he sees it, of, of Judaism, completely changed the world, completely changed the world. Uh, and uh, from an aristocratic morality in which um, values like glory and honour and fame were esteemed, we got a new morality, what he calls um, disparagingly a herd or a slave morality, um, which glorifies the weak and the poor um, and the helpless over the strong and, the, as he deems it, the noble and the aristocratic. Uh, it's a very um, powerful statement, isn't it, about the um, success of the Judeo-Christian ethic and the transformative power it's had on the world. Mm -hmm. It is, and it's. it's um, I mean, he goes so far as to say, and now we don't even need Christianity mm. because it's um, come. The, the the whole culture is infected with the the herd morality. Yeah. So he's right. He's. I think he's right in mm. that extent, even those people who aren't Christian. Um, 
we'll see morality in the kind of communal terms that he yeah. is uh, criticising. So it, his focus is on the individual and the individual's will, mm. and as you will have read, you know, will to power. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the challenging thing for us. So the, for him, Napoleon becomes the, um, the ideal, mm. it's both, both monster and Superman in, yeah. in terms of acting on his will mm. to power. And, and, you know, suppressing what Nietzsche says is, is conscience, which is somehow just manufactured. Yes. We all have this sort of sense of right and wrong, but he says that's really a construct. Yes, it's, it's, we, we conform to that construct. Mm. And, and what, what needs to happen is that we free ourselves yeah. completely to that and open ourselves to you know, what he refers to as our Dionysian impulses, mm. to passion, to excess. Yeah. That, and the, the Apollonian impulses are there too in terms mm, of reason order. And, and order but it's a kind of interesting combination of the two yeah. and it's determined by the strength of one's own will. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, it is pervasive that everyone is, you mentioned in, in Nietzsche's terminology, infected by, by this morality and he says, doesn't he, even liberals, by which he means people, who, progressives, people who believe that they've moved on from Christianity, he says even their worldview is completely saturated with the Judeo-Christian ethic. And he, and later in the, in the third essay, he has this, um, wonder, to me, wonderful, exhilarating moment where he's talking about this supposed tension between Christianity and science. And he says, all these scientists are actually um, uh, basing everything they do on the same metaphysical presupposition that there is such a thing as truth and that the Judeo-Christian ethic is really responsible for imparting, you know, and spreading this notion that there is a truth, that we can know it. And, um, you know, science might think that it's opposed, but in fact it's built on the same root. And what we have to do, if we're really to be revolutionary, is to root out any notion or to challenge the notion that there is a truth, um, it, because that gets in the way, as you were saying, Sandy, of the will. Mm. Um, this is terrifying, isn't it? What do you think, Tim? Yeah, I think it is extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. And I mean, this has been one of the, um, the most influential books in the history of um, moral philosophy. And it's, uh, I guess, one of, the, one of the reasons it's been so influential is it displays this, this method, which is sort of what you were um, describing, which is very, some people find very, very uncomfortable this method of genealogy or genealogical explanation, which is where you take a concept which seems very commonsensical, seems like there's widespread consensus mm. on what it's about. So his is like good and bad, but you can do it for truth as well. And then you provide a genealogy. So it has a history. Yeah, that concept. And you're like, good and bad are not just mm. like neutral terms or just commonsensical terms, but actually like we got the content of those concepts through this very like contingent, unique history mm. and that history could have gone quite another way and then we would have meant something different with these concepts and so when you then tell that history and in this book his history is like we have these terms good and bad which have this um, yeah unique history throughout the Judeo-Christian tradition and so he says we needn't mm. like ascribe that meaning to these concepts we there, there was another possible way they could have go gone say if Rome never fell or Christianity never mm. rise or something like that and then that's meant to create a whole lot of um, doubt or scepticism about yeah. these terms. So it's like, wow, these terms 
good or bad don't necessarily mean that, or this term truth doesn't necessarily mean mm. that. Perhaps there's another way to go with those concepts, which I think is a very, very um, powerfully disruptive kind of argument to give. And he like, says there's an agenda as well. Yeah. So you might see think that these are commonsensical notions, but the reason that they were promoted was to serve another purpose, which was, uh, you know, so that the weak could actually triumph over the strong. Um, and so, you know, it looks like it's um, self-sacrificing, you know, but it's really built on resentment. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason, you, you know, you say, um, do good to those who, who persecute you or um, that you have, that you believe that we should serve the poor and so on, isn't really selfless. He says there's some other motivating mm. factor in that, you know, and, and he comes back to this resentment. Resentment and yeah. fear, he says fear. as well, that, that in fact the, the reason that we, we have um, this strong morality and these mm. strong moral judgments that we make within the Judeo-Christian mm. tradition is that that in fact keeps um, those people who might um, express their will to power against us at bay, at bay. Or, yes, or, yeah, yeah. Li limits their power. And so he thinks that both fear and resentment and even hatred, he, mm. he talks about hatred too. Although, Tim, when you know he's talking about his social history, there's something a little bit contradictory in what he says because he, he says that he is taking the Greek um, notion of um, morality and the, uh, the Romans are used as, as examples as well, as you mm. said, Stephen. And that, that in, in fact, that that was there first and then along came Christianity. But later when he's talking about the Jews in particular, he says that, that in fact the aristocratic morality that he's recommending um, grew out of the hatred of the Jews. Mm. And there's something quite contradictory about this. And I think there's something about his anti-Semitism mm. that's... Um, that, that's a little odd. I think you made a, um, before we were talking, yeah. you made a, a comment about that, that, that he, he, there can be contradictions in, in his work that, that are worrying from a philosophical yeah. point of view. But from a practical point of view, I think he's got something to tell us. You know, mm. he's, he's, he's got something to tell us about our attitude to others, about the tall poppy Syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like interestingly, one of the paradoxes or one of the, the points of tension in this book is because, of course, Nietzsche uh, advocates for this very um, strong aristocratic morality. Mm. Uh, but then he has this, I think he has this like kind of like um, reluctant respect for Christian and Judeo Christian um, morality so because he's like, well, they won. Yeah. <laughs> so I respect that they won. Yeah. They caused Rome to fall. Mm. So, yeah. you know, they were the victor in some mm. sense. And that's what he's inclined to respect. Mm. Yes, you, you go to Rome in his time, right. even you now. And, yeah. the, he, and he means there that, the, you know, the Pope, people yeah. genuflecting to yeah. the Pope, genuflecting to, to Christ, to the cross mm. and to yeah. the sacrament in churches, um, you know, um, praying to, to Mary, um, devoted to Peter and to Paul, and he just finds this absolute, you know, in his world historical terms, mm. extraordinary, mm. Mm -hmm. extraordinary. Mm. The, these people, in his sense, were the losers, mm. yes. you know, mm. in the ancient world, and the Romans somehow were the the great, mm. um, the great, well, the culmination of aristocratic civilizations mm. and this great military power, and and they've been taken over, 
you know, mm. when you go to Rome now, it's Christian yes, Rome. Yes. Right. Um, but th there is also, when you say there is this sort of grudging respect for Judeo, the Judeo-Christian ethic, and I, I'm connecting those because he does, doesn't he? He sees mm -hmm. them as very much, as very much yeah. connected. Mm -hmm. But then there's this rather dark prophecy towards the end. He talks about, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, basically what this all leads to is the obliteration of everything else and to the point where it, it's now consuming itself and, uh, you know, that you, basically you couldn't get atheism without Christianity and Judeo and Judaism having first done the work of abolishing all the other gods, then you get the one God and the notion that there is truth left there. And that in itself now is going to be challenged. And he, and he talks about the next 200 years and he says it will be this devastating, great hundred-act play uh, in which he anticipates a complete re-evaluation of value, uh, of morality. Mm. And... Um, that basically you don't get to reject Christianity in his estimation and keep the nice bits that something what we would regard as mm. terrifying and horrible is going to emerge once those things are set aside. And mm. the reason I say prophetic is because of course in the 20th century uh, awful thing, you know, on a grand scale unprecedented in human history mm. took place mm. uh, and really a lot of that under the under the banner of rejecting morality as mm. it had been understood mm. for at least two thousand, mm. but if not more years. Yes, yes. Um, and I think when he talks about moral judgment um, having in common with religious judgment that it believes in realities that don't exist, mm. he's opening this void up to us. So then, yeah. then what happens? Well, we have to wait and see what yeah. what fills that void and. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a very disturbing view yeah. of the, the moral landscape for well, human he, beings. He says, without truth, mm. and he's saying we've got to challenge the notion of truth, mm. and he says, without truth, everything is permitted. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is a notion that's, of course, explored also by Dostoevsky. Yes. Um, without truth, everything is mm. permitted. Mm. So that, you know, you, in that sense, you can't, once you give up, once you sort of say there's no we can't be certain of truth, mm. everything is permitted. Mm. Um, you, yeah. Can you say that it's wrong yeah. to murder someone? Yes, yes. Can you say that it's wrong to, to do terrible things? Mm. I mean, even the notion that it's terrible is somehow, in his estimation, constructed. Yes. Am yeah. I and right? In yes, that? Oh, I think so. I think yeah. he just, he's opening this up and his ideal person, as mm. you know, in Napoleon is both monster and Superman, yeah. does whatever he likes to achieve his, his goal and yeah. acts on... on on his will with with impunity, yeah. and is to be um, praised yeah. for that. It, so it is a kind of terrifying version, but at the same time, I think that that what it has to say to us mm. in is who are, and I'm accepting that we we're operating within that, mm. even if we're not um, Christians, we're yeah. operating within that um, cultural framework that it's saying to us, be careful of conformity. Mm. Think about you know, your, what it is to be, um, Lionel Trilling's work on authenticity and sincerity mm. comes to mind. You, you, you could be a very sincere Christian, but are you being an authentic person? Mm. And 
there's the difficult question of thinking, well, how do you bring those together? And I think he's, he's, his work can lead to that kind of conversation. And to that extent, I think it's really worthwhile. Yeah. Or am I just, you know, am I just following, in terms yes, of exactly. authenticity, yeah. am I just doing this without thinking without, about it? Yes. Yeah. Um, mm. yeah. Mm. It's, um, uh, am I right that really until Nietzsche there is nothing as, as um, there is no um, critique as devastating of Christianity as this in philosophical terms? Or are there others? Certainly in terms of the the morality mm. that it would that it would produce. Yes. Yeah. Um, David Hume was um, very, gave a, a number of powerful arguments mm. for um, doubting aspects of the um, like um, miracles and yes. the existence of God and yeah. things like that, which came along um, a bit beforehand. But yes. definitely in terms of the uh, this is the form of life which Christianity gives rise to, or this is the mm. culture which Christianity has sort of produced. If you take that wide scale lens over the past two thousand years, mm. or something like that. Um, definitely nature, yes, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think so too, because the, the Hume's scepticism, you know, there, there's a value in that, but he's still saying, well, we have this inner feeling mm. that directs us this natural sentiment mm. towards virtue. Yeah. And Nietzsche would say, well, no, we haven't, we don't have that. Because Nietzsche's also anti-enlightenment, isn't he? It's not just anti-Christianity, mm. yeah. he's yeah. anti-enlightenment. Yes. He's yes. anti-utilitarian even. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, Let's talk about, we've, we've touched on some of the disturbing aspects mm. of the work. I mean, he, he has a lot in there, he's writing of course in the 19th century, bef, uh, but he has a lot in there about the blonde beast. He, uh, he obviously, I mean, even though he's critical through the work of anti-Semitism and, and, and some he disparages as they're anti-Semites and not to be taken seriously. Nonetheless, it's hard not to read his work as in some sense anti-Semitic, mm. uh, even if that means in a broad cultural sense of anti-Jewish and anti-Christian, um, because he sees Christianity as uh, you know, the culmination of Judaism um, and uh, you know, the triumph of, of um, what he sees as resentment. Um, but um, the, he talks about the blonde beast, he talks about the, the sort of Aryan heroes and so on. Um, is it fair to, to um, tarnish Nietzsche with the, as, as a sort of prefigurement of, of Nazism? Is it fair? I would say yes, because I think that, you know, that that's all, all there and, I, and the, there are contradictions mm. as we attention to before but certainly that is there and and I think that f for me that's a very worrying aspect mm. but at this at the same time I think that he um, when he comes at that notion he's he's awakening something and I think I made this point before he's awakening something in us that that ought to make us think about why we commit to what we commit to whatever that is um, so I, I think that his his view is that the the blonde the blonde beast the the, the Superman is um, to be admired because he is he which is it's always he mm. um, is creating his own um, sense of, of value so reassessing re reevaluating values so 
that he's got his own particular sense of that, but there's something in incredibly nihilistic about that because we, you know, what happens when we all have our own sense of values and we all act on them? Surely it's and going to be. And they're incommensurable. Yeah, it's going to be chaos. Mm. We imagine, and when I, I sometimes I'm reading him, I think, I know why this man ended up in an insane asylum because there's something so, so over the top about the way in which he. Um, the language that he uses, but at the same time, there is something worthwhile there telling us that we have a tendency to conform without thinking, as I mentioned before. Yeah. That's a great note on which to finish. Mm. Thank you both. Mm.